Uh, let's, we're going to pray uh, for our, our text today, for our time. Acts 6, 1 through 4, that Zach just read. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. <coughs> Excuse me. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the love that you have for your church. Um, you have been exceedingly gracious to your church always. And in no way is that um, revealed more than through your son, Jesus. Lord, I ask uh, this morning that we might better understand him, that we might see him clearly uh, in the text, what he has done in his heart for his people. Lord, I ask this morning that you might increase our knowledge and also stir our affections for you through the power of your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. <coughs> Acts 6, 1 through 4. We see here that uh, the church has become, we see the church has become a huge movement. In Acts 6, first of all, let me give disclaimer. I do not have COVID. All right, two, two negative tests, but I am recovering from the wintertime sickness. The church has become a huge movement in Acts. It's roughly 33, maybe 34 A.D., it's about the time of Paul's conversion. And the Jerusalem church is at least 10,000 people here in Acts. It's probably closer to 20,000 people. And they're all in one city. And the entire population of this city could not have been more than maybe 40,000 people. So imagine a city of maybe just a little smaller than Joplin, and you have about 20,000 people all together within the local church. So it's a crazy number of people who are gathered together. And the Greek-speaking Jews begin to complain against the Hebrew-speaking Jews concerning the distribution of food. So the church was doing what the church is supposed to do, caring for the people of God. And in this day, what many people needed was food to eat, specifically widows and orphans. In the early church, there was a special provision made for widows and orphans from the common fund to make sure that they were fed. Much like a church today, like us, we still have, we have a benevolence fund to make sure people are taken care of. In this day, it was incredibly common, because men didn't tend to live as long, for women to be widows and for orphans to be abandoned. And so the church had a special burden to care for them. We still have that burden, but it was even more prevalent then because the way the culture was, if you were a widow, if you didn't have a husband to care for you, you basically had no other means by which to survive. And so the church stepped up and filled that gap. And the Hellenists here, they believe that their widows are being left out in this daily provision. Now, this is a significant problem. Obviously, there's an administrative issue in the church. The church is blown up. It's like 20,000 people. They haven't quite figured out how, all the, how this works, how everything operates. But this is more than just an administrative issue. This is a racial problem, and it threatened to fracture the church here in its very early stages. The people are essentially saying, you are prioritizing those people over these people because of their ethnicity. That's what's being brought forward before the church. They're not just saying, hey, you're, you're not really paying attention. This isn't really set up very well. They are accusing the church of caring for a certain group of people and not another on the basis of race. And then in the time when the gospel was first being preached, 
there were two classes of Jews. The Hebrews who were born in Palestine and who spoke Hebrew. And there were the Hellenistic Jews. And those who were born from Jewish parents, but they were born outside of Palestine and they mostly spoke the Greek language. And the Hellenistic Jews, they had mostly adopted Greek culture. The Greek culture was a common part of their lives. Whereas the Hebrews were absolutely against this and had nothing to do with it. So the Hebrew Jews tended to look down on the Hellenists, and this is playing out within the local church. You have these two groups of people who have come together. One really does judge the other, and because of that, they're not treating them the same way. And the church, therefore, in order to address this issue here in Acts, they chose seven men to distribute food equitably and fairly. I want you to see, though, and it's important today as we talk about the role of deacons, that their sole function. The reason they were brought forward wasn't merely to serve food. If handing out food was the primary function, then anyone could have done it. Like he, get, he tells them specifically, pick brothers out from among you of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. If they were simply handing out food boxes, they don't have to be all that wise to do that. Anybody could have done that. Their character wouldn't have mattered. But they were tasked with something greater than just handing out food. They were tasked with restoring unity where there was division. Unity building was their primary goal. Good administration was the means by which they would attain this goal. While the book of Acts lacks the word deacon, most scholars acknowledge that Acts 6 shows the appointing of the early church's first deacons, and they were appointed in order to be unity builders within the church to address the needs of the people. In Acts 6, these seven men are chosen to assist the local church in its ministry to windows, to widow, win widows. Apparently, the spiritual and physical needs of the church in Jerusalem had grown too expansive for the apostles to meet by themselves. The apostles, wanting to remain faithful to their appointed ministry of praying for the people and preaching the word, they appointed godly men to step up and to fill this need in the church's hour of need. These men in Acts 6 are described as being of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. This was <coughs> kind of 1.0 of the qualification for deacon. But later, the apostle Paul would offer a more expansive list of requirements for deacons. In his letter to Timothy, he did just that. Today, I want to take a moment and look at Transition to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, where we see um, an expansion of uh, these qualifications that are listed here in the book of Acts. Um, in verses 8 through 10, as he addresses the church, we see in 1 Timothy that Paul lays out some qualifications for those who are to serve as deacons within the church. Number one, he says that those who serve as deacons, who continue the role that was set forward, that was established in the book of Acts, should be dignified. Dignified, meaning they are people that are worthy of respect. People respect them and would respect them as a leader. They're people who are worth being imitated. We see in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, that there would be people who are not double-tongued. This means they are not a gossip or a slanderer. A deacon is someone who can be trusted. They don't talk like Satan does. They do not speak lies. They aren't two-faced, but they're sincere people. They're not looking to cause division, but they can be trusted. 
as a, a pastor within the church, much, much like uh, as the apostles there, they needed to, choo- to choose those who were part of their team, who were with them, who could s- help partner with them in the work that needed to be done, which was carrying these people. As a pastor, when an L, a deacon is appointed, I'm, I'm not worried about that person. I'm, I know that they're going to speak honestly to me as they need to, and that they're going to be honest and, and forthright in supporting the church with the people that they serve. I'm going over these quickly because, like I said two weeks ago, they're similar to the role. They were basically a repetition of what was spoken of with elders with a couple of exceptions. Uh, They're not addicted to much wine. Paul is basically saying they have control when it comes to alcohol. They have control over addictions. They pay attention to these things. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. They aren't always looking for a quick buck. And they aren't involved in get-rich-quick silliness. This is especially important for deacons who serve and have, uh, you know, who have access to the benevolence funds and the church's finances. Um, we don't, you don't want a Judas to be serving as a deacon. They're at peace with their station in life. They're honest and hardworking, not consumed or, consumed or motivated by money. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That meaning they are gospel people. They understand and live from the truth that God so loved his son, that he sent, that God so loved his sons and daughters, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for us. They are not required to be able to teach like elders, but they still must be a gospel people who hold to the gospel and are motivated by the gospel in all things. They're still doctrinal people, they need to be a people to hold to the, that hold to the things which are true. Now, a difference on, on here on, in our context would be there's a more broad room amongst the deacon. When you join Rooted, when you look on our membership page of our website, you'll notice there's an elder affirmation and a member affirmation. Our member affirmation is like five pages, and it's us saying this is, this is what it means to be a Christian. And to be a member here, you need to hold to these truths that we believe are close-handed issues regarding what it means to be a Christian. A deacon falls into that category. It would be somebody who could affirm the basic principles of Christianity that would affirm our member affirmation. Our elder affirmation is like 45 pages because for those who are charged with teaching, there needs to be a greater deal of unity and regarding, regarding the open-handed issues of theology. But for a deacon, you're looking for someone who just holds to and understands and lives from the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And it says that they need to be tested. These are people that are observed, assessed, and trained by the elders and then approved for installation as deacons before the body. That means there's an actual process to becoming a deacon. A deacon's not somebody who just volunteers for a role, but when I bring forward to you as a church somebody who's a deacon, it should be somebody who you think, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I kind of thought they were already that. You know, like that totally makes sense. The two most impactful sicknesses in the church are, number one, leaders who are not trustworthy and members who are unable to trust. Overall, these tell us deacons need to be people who are trustworthy. Being able to trust comes from faith. It comes from a belief in who Christ is and an observance that what he has commanded is taking place. But being able to be trusted comes from being a person who lives in line with the qualifications that have been put forward. Deacons need to be trustworthy people. Now, I want to take some time within this text, more time than on the other qualifications, to look at verse 11 because this is not the most significant of all of them. But culturally, this is the one that probably needs the most explanation. Uh, So I'm going to spend 
a big chunk of the sermon, most of it, talking here about the implications of verse 11 because it has um, historically been an incredibly divisive verse. So I'm going to read to you verse 11. When speaking of deacons, it says, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. This can seem straightforward, and the truth is that it's a little bit more complex than maybe it appears um, just at the beginning. I want to talk this morning about the meaning of verse 11 in regards to deacons. At this point, if you were here two weeks ago, and you quickly read this passage and you compare the elder and deacon qualifications, when you're looking at the original language, uh, without looking at the original language, two things pop out to you. Number one, a deacon doesn't have to be able to teach. That's a primary difference between the elder qualifications and deacons. It's a different role, a different responsibility. Number two is that if you're not using your footnotes, if you're not looking at the original wording, it seems as if Paul is giving qualifications for deacons' wives, but he didn't give any qualifications for the wives of elders. This seems odd because it is odd. And I want to, because of that, I want to explain and closely examine the terms here. The term, their wives, I want to start there. This phrase, their wives, is not the most helpful interpretation of the actual Greek word that is used here in Scripture. If you have an ESV Bible, maybe any other versions, I just know because I have an ESV, you'll notice that next to the term wives, there is a number four that shows a footnote. And that footnote points out that this could also be rendered women likewise. The term there is not actually there in the original language, and the term for wives is a term broadly used for women. The Greek word translated wives in this text is a word that simply means women. Additionally, yeah, the word there is not even in the original text. So while many have interpreted this throughout the ages as their wives, a more literal interpretation could just be women likewise. Likewise suggests that Paul is continuing to speak of deacons. After speaking of qualifications for deacons, he is essentially saying women likewise. He's been talking to male deacons, and then he immediately transitions using the term likewise, women likewise, and he gives some additional qualifications that aren't different qualifications. They're just kind of a summary of what he's already said. This, the things that he points out, he, he says women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers sober-minded, faithful in all things. If you consider each of those terms, those aren't additional terms. It's almost like he took the list he just gave the men and he kind of boiled it down, like reiterating these things. You must be dignified. You must be a respectable person. You must not be a slanderer, not double-tongued, not somebody who's talking behind the back of other people. Sober-minded, you know, again, not a, you know, kind of summarizing a combination of not addicted to, you know, and, and various other things. Faithful in all things, holding to the mystery of the faith. You essentially see this recap of what he just said. The qualifications listed are remarkably similar to what is required for male deacons. They parallel each other. He's basically giving a summary to these women deacons of what he just charged to the men regarding the importance of these principles. This passage is essentially broke down like this. In 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 10, he's addressing male deacons. And then he says, women likewise, 3.11, he transitions to female deacons being addressed in summary. 3.12, male deacons are addressed. And then in 3.13, male and deacons are addressed together, which we'll read that verse at the end. 
I do not believe that verse 11 is a reference to the wives of deacons. For then Paul would be addressing the wives of deacons and saying nothing about the wives of elders, which is quite unlikely because elders have greater responsibility than deacons do. And pastor's wife and deacon's spouse, those are not offices within the church of God and they never have been. There's no qualification to be able to play the organ if you're a pastor's wife and there's no qualification you know, for a deacon's wife set apart specifically. It's my belief in the position of the elders of Rooted Church, and that's why we're taking this month to talk about these things, that women can and should be installed as deacons in the local church. And I'll, I say, one of the reasons I want to talk about this in detail is because we received a, we received a lot of pushback for this when we started uh, Rooted here in the community because many Baptist churches among us have a different view of deacons. A deacon board is a board of you know, typically older guys who meet once a month and make decisions about things like finances and stuff like that. Um, but nowhere do we see that example of a deacon in Scripture. A deacon is something much different. It has much more profound responsibility in Scripture than just meeting once a month to, than serving as a board of directors. That's not what a deacon was meant to be. We believe that a deacon is something much more than that, and we believe that the deacon ministry is open to men and women equally. In an age where progressiveness has been given more weight than proper doctrine and where culture has caused the church to change its stance on many clear positions of scripture, including that regarding gender roles, it's easy to see how one could be weary and a little skeptical of a church taking such a stance. However, I want you to understand this morning that the concept of women deacons it's actually a very orthodox, historic practice in the history of the church since the very beginning. It's evident not only that from an early period in church history there were female de deacons, but we actually see female deacons referenced in scripture. Women deacons are biblical. In Romans 16, verse 1 and 2, we see Paul say this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centre." that you may welcome her in the Lord a way, in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron and of many and of myself as well. <coughs> Paul calls Phoebe a servant, which is the same word used for deacon in 1 Timothy 3. Now, some will say that Paul's simply calling her just that. He's just using the same term for servant. He's just saying she's a servant in the church. But the context does seem to say that she is in fact a deaconess. This is because Paul mentions a specific church, a servant, same word for deacon, a servant of the church at Centre. There's an official title here attached to this word for deacon. And that structure, when used in the rest of the New Testament, no other examples, the rest of the New Testament is noting a person in an official office within the church. Dr. Spiegel at Dallas Theological Seminary, on this verse, he says this. First, Paul describes Phoebe as a deaconess of the church at Centre, specifying her function as deaconess to that specific church. This may seem insignificant until we realize whenever the Greek phrase blank title of the church is used in the New Testament and the earliest Christian literature the personal designation always refers to an office, not just a generic function. You can find this in Acts 20.17, Ephesians 5.23, James 5.14, 
and all throughout the book of Revelation. If Phoebe is merely a helpful assistant of the church at Sintra in Romans 16.1, then this is the one and only time in all of Scripture that this kind of word construction is used. It seems far more likely that Paul is identifying Phoebe as a deaconess of the church of Sintra. There is no question that local churches do and always have disagreed on this matter, on this open-handed issue. When we are uncertain as to the specific intent of Scripture, there are a couple things we can do that are not equal to Scripture, but they can be helpful. Number one, we can look at church history. Church history does not trump Scripture ever, and it is not equal to it. But it does show us how those who came before us dealt with things that we face today. The practice may not always lead us in the right direction, but it can help us see clearly from the point of view of those who walked this path before us. Number two, we can consider what do our leaders, teachers hold to and believe? Who are those that influence us, that we read, that we trust to handle the word of God rightly, and what do they believe? The opinions of man are not equal to scripture, but we can learn from one another and should humbly consider the viewpoint of those we hold in high esteem. So I want to take a minute to do just that, to look at church, what church history tells us about the practice of women deacons. In AD 111, Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, reported questioning under torture two women who called themselves deaconesses concerning Christian rights. He arrested them as Christians, they said they were deaconesses in the church, and he tortured them. So right at the end of the apostolic period, there are deaconesses in the church, history tells us. There are churches that were planted, these are churches that were planted and discipled by the apostles, and we know from historical record that they had women deacons within them. So if they had made an error on this issue, they made it right after the time of the apostolic period. We also find evidence of the deaconess in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Here's a quote from the 3rd century from the Constitutions of the Holy Apostles. This was a, essentially a guidebook that was written for church plants based on the teaching of the apostles. It says, Let the deacons be in all things unspotted, as the bishop himself is to be, only more active, in number according to the languages of the church, that they may minister to the infirm as workmen that are not ashamed. And let the deaconess be diligent in taking care of the women, but both of them ready to carry messages, to travel about, to minister, and to serve. Let everyone therefore know his proper place and discharge it diligently with one consent, with one mind, knowing the reward of their ministry. And again, in that same guidebook, ordain also a deaconess who is faithful and holy for the ministry towards women. For sometimes he cannot send a deacon who is a man to the women on account of unbelievers. Thou shalt therefore send a woman, a deaconess, on account of the imaginations of the bad. For we stand in need of a woman, a deaconess, for many necessities, and first in the baptism of women. Now, we may not agree with everything there, but we see in the 3rd and 4th centuries that this was a common practice, that the church is bringing this forward even in their training material. It's clear that from the beginning of the church, women deacons served. Now, let us also consider how leaders of the church, those whom we look to and are familiar with and respect, have landed on this issue throughout the ages. I'll start with some pastors, theologians of old. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Deaconess is an office 
that was most certainly recognized in the apostolic churches and is necessary. John Calvin wrote, It would be a great mercy if God gave us the privilege of having many sons who all preached the gospel and many daughters who were all eminent in the church as teachers, deaconesses, missionaries, and the like. For deaconesses were appointed not to soothe God by chantings or unintelligible murmurs and spend the rest of their time in idleness, but to perform a public ministry of the church toward the poor and to labor with all zeal, diligence, and the offices of charity. And this belief is not only held to by pastors of old, but it is still held to today by many faithful leaders of the church, including the likes of John Piper, Mark Dever, Tim Keller, and John MacArthur, who all write about and uphold the reality that women are called to be deacons in the church as well. The reason that we have got the deacon role so wrong over the last hundred years or so is because we have made little of the role of elder within the local church to the point that it's diminished amongst most churches uh, to not even existing and being replaced by an office that was never supposed to fill that role. The church in America at one point stopped holding a high view of the plurality of elders and they began asking deacons to serve in a way they were not intended to. We transitioned away from having a plurality of elders and we began to just make the church about one person and one person who was in charge. Well, then we didn't have a plurality of elders, but we still kind of needed to hold this one guy accountable. Well, so the deacons can do that. It's, pretty, it's hard to have an elder, but it's easy to have a deacon. So we just began elevating deacons and making them a corporate board that kind of oversaw a seat. We kind of took on a corporate board of directors, CEO model, and got away from that of a plurality of elders working alongside and with the local deacons. And that's where this got diminished. And, I, and right now we're in an era where we're seeing a return to the biblical view of leadership that is a plurality of elders and deacons serving alongside. This is, uh, this is a view that many are, are coming to an under, a right understanding of, but it's still difficult for many to accept and acknowledge because we've, we've kind of rooted into some of our errors to a significant degree. When we became, when we planted here in Joplin um, early on, we wanted to be kind of join with the local Baptist association and a local Baptist pastor um, who's been around for a long time and is a really good guy. He took me to lunch secretly in a hidden back booth of a restaurant nobody would go to because he didn't want to be seen with me. And I had, I wrote, I had to write a paper, um, basically the, a big part of this sermon on our stance as to why women could be deacons. And he took me to lunch. He's much older than me, very kind man. And he said, essentially, I, I agree with you. I agree with your paper. I can see what you're saying. But if I were to stand before my body, which is led by deacons, and I were to affirm a planter of a church that says women could be deacons, I could lose my job. And I explained to him that right, right there and then was my very issue. Like that was the fact that that could happen signifies a form of leadership that is not what we see in Scripture. One of our goals, and, be, and I'll acknowledge that because of that, those early encounters, We've been slow to begin to use, we've been slow to use that term deacon. The truth is, we have people in our church operating as deacons right now. Every church does, even if they don't call them that. Every church has men and women who are serving a deacon type function, whether they're using that term or not. But one of our goals in 2022, and the reason we're taking time this month, is because we do want to begin to use that term. We want to begin 
a biblical deacon ministry composed of men and women who are appointed by the elders and who are members of Rooted Church. And with that in mind, I want to close this morning by just considering the question, what is it that deacons do? Number one, deacons aid the elders. And the same model we see in Acts 6, the apostles had been, they had a job to do and they needed biblical gospel-centered help in doing it. The deacons aid the pastors working together and serving the people of God. The reason the ministry began is so that the shepherds of the church could focus on equipping the saints through God's word being preached. Deacons are trustworthy, not double-tongued. They support the work of the elders and the church. They're those able to be trusted to carry out the meeting the practical needs of the people of God. Mark Dever in his book, Understanding Church Leadership, says, you don't want people serving as deacons who are unhappy with the church. The deacons should never be the ones who complain the loudest or jar the church with their actions or attitudes. Quite the opposite. The deacons should be the mufflers or shock absorbers. You don't want to nominate deacons who don't recognize the importance of the ministry of preaching and teaching, but people who are anxious to protect it. More broadly, you want the most supportive people in the church to serve as the deacons so that when you're considering who might serve as a deacon, look for people with the gifts of encouragement. Again, deacons are unifiers, those who help serve the mission of the church and comfort and meet the needs of God's people. Number two, deacons are lead servants. Again, the term deacon means servant. In other words, they aid the church in being faithful to the commands of God. The commands of God. Love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 12. Visit widows and orphans in their afflictions. James 1, 27. Make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2. Deacons are those who care about the commands of God and aid the church in those things happening. They care about people. They care about the sheep. And they're on the ground helping to meet the needs of the people of God, lining up with the commands of God in every way. Deacons care about these commands. And they serve in a beautiful role as they devote themselves to serving the commands of God and bringing others with them along the way. And three, just reiterating, Deacons are unifiers. As Acts 6 demonstrates, the first deacons served the church by distributing food to, wind, to wid, widows. But again, they were also unifying the church of God. The church had a problem. The church was doing a bad job at loving people rightly. They, the elders, the apostles in that case, they were messing it up. They were overlooking something that was real. They needed people who could step in, who could help fix that. They took the rebuke of the members as they should, and they repented of that, and they made a plan to correct it, and the deacons helped to correct that problem and make sure that people weren't overlooked. The deacons made sure nobody was overlooked. They were aware of the practical needs of the people, and they committed themselves to helping meet those needs. Deacons work with the elders to make sure the needs of the people of God are met. And this is the essence of we want, what we want deacons to be at Rooted Church. We believe that historically there is some openness. The deacon role can be seen in different ways and utilized in different ways based on the need of the church. But we need deacons who are aware of, connected to, and are helping the elders to make, be aware of the needs amongst the body of Christ. This year, when we bring forward deacons, 
we will be bringing forward those whom we have tasked with helping to meet these specific needs and being aware of those amongst a group of people. My desire um, this year is to, to see that take place, to depend on, to be more in touch with the needs of you, with the needs of people, and to be available to help meet those needs spiritually. I want to be, ava- there was a day and age where every community had a physician and a pastor. A physician was, you know, your physician for your body, and then a pastor was seen as a, essentially a spiritual physician, someone who was available to remind and encourage through God's word, and, and I want to do a better job of that in the year ahead. That's one of my personal goals. And part of the the conviction around having deacons is that I might have some help in being more aware of the places where that is needed. Preaching, intercession, pastoral care, all of these things are the primary jobs of an elder and we need godly deacons in order to help that take place. And 1 Timothy 3.13, I believe speaking to men and women deacons, summarizing this says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence and the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, deacons are a gospel people who serve from a gospel motivation, as do all of the offices of the church. Whether you are a member, a deacon, or an elder, you are here because God loves you and God loves his church and he has put these things in place in order that she might be protected and that she might flourish in the ways which he knows are best. This, uh, these last couple sermons have been a little different. It's a little different format than we usually uh, do, but I do wanna want you to understand as we close that in all of these things, whether we're talking, you know, we've talked about members now, we've talked about elders, we've talked about deacons, in all of these roles and these offices, what is ultimately on display is the love that Jesus Christ has for his church. And that because of the love with which he has for his church, he has taken steps and put things in place that his people might be protected, that his people might be drawn to something deeper than themselves through the body of Christ that he bought with his blood. That Jesus Christ, if you belong to him, he delights in you and he is his joy comes as the broken, as the weary, are, as their needs are met, as they're drawn to him, as they find their rest and fulfillment in him. It's what brings joy to the very heart of Christ. And thus he has taken steps to structure his church in such a way that the people of God might be cared for as a reflection of the ultimate care they have received through his blood and his atoning work. Jesus Christ loves his church. And he went to the cross because of the great love with which he has for his church. He is gentle and lowly in heart, and he sympathizes with us in our brokenness. He is aware of your needs. There's not one need that you have even in this moment that he does not fully sympathize with, and that he is not fully willing and eager to come and meet. And he has put God's people in your life that they might help point you to him, that those needs might be met but the, 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 the only water that can fully satisfy. This morning, I want to uh, just take a moment um, to pray uh, for you, to pray for our body, uh, that, uh, that those things, whether spoken or unspoken, might be met at the only place uh, where we can actually find the healing and rest we need. Would you pray with me?